Welcome to the Chinese History Podcast. I'm Yiming Ha. And I'm Greg Sattler. Today, our topic is maritime sea trade in East Asia during the Tangsong period, which is roughly around the 10th to the 12th century. Now, in recent decades, scholarship on maritime sea trade in early modern East Asia, that is around the 15th, 16th, 17th, and 18th century, has really taken off, and there are a lot of books and articles published on this subject. But I find that scholarship on maritime trade during the Tangsong period is still somewhat lacking. Now, obviously, this is a topic that you've been working on for a long time. So could you start by telling us what attracts you to this period? Yeah, that's a good question. Right now, there's a lot of scholarly attention on the Tangsong transition. I think what a lot of scholars are attracted to is that it kind of goes beyond political dimensions. There's a lot of changes happening. And so after the Tang Dynasty collapses, these changes are going into periods where there's disunion, there's small states, and then they carry on until the next empire. So I think what a lot of scholars are interested in is just kind of figuring out what's driving these changes, what's going on, what are the continuities, what are the big major changes, how they affect society, the economy, and of course, politics is a major topic as well. And for those who don't know about the Tangsong transition, can you briefly explain what historians mean when they refer to a Tangsong transition? So in about the year 755, around that time, there's a big, massive, massive rebellion, the Anlushan Rebellion. And that pretty much devastates the north of the country. It causes massive patterns of decentralization. And that really, I think, spurs on. That's really the kickstart of the transition. So as the capital, the political elites in the capital try to kind of maintain their power, try to claw back power over the outlying provinces, there's other trends going in place. It seems that there's a lot less government regulation going on from the center. So suddenly we see a lot of economic activity, particularly in the southeast and the south along the coast. There's a lot of economic activity that's spurred in these areas. And there's also movement of people. I mean, the trends of, of Chinese people moving to the south, that can be traced all the way back to the end of the Han Dynasty in the third century. But this Anlushan Rebellion really spurs this big change. There's people fleeing towards the south, fleeing towards other areas. And eventually, the Tang authorities are able to get some degree of control over the country. They're able to kind of solidify their control, but they never really get back to what the Tang Empire was before the Anlushan Rebellion. So really, that's the starting point of the transition. And it pretty much comes to a headway in the Song Dynasty, in the Northern Song Dynasty. So pretty much, I would say, towards the end of the 10th century, there's a new empire in place, the Song Empire. And a lot of the changes that began after the Anlushan Rebellion are coming to a full headway. There's the, the coastal areas of China have become very big centers of commerce. And even 
of political influence too, because at this time you start to see people from these prosperous areas of Fujian and Zhejiang province doing very well in government examinations. They're taking on roles inside the government. There's a disproportionate amount of courtiers, scholar officials from these areas who start to control the Song government. So these are just kind of some of the changes that take place during the transition. So trade has always existed in China, right? Even if you go back to the Warring States period, there were merchants, there were trade, there was exchange. But what about trade during this period that makes it different from the periods before? Well, there was a greater frequency. So the government, the Song government, was first of all much more sympathetic to trade. They were taxing it. They were getting a lot of wealth from sea trade. So it was advantageous for them to promote it and also control it at the same time, which is what happened during the Song Dynasty. During the Tang Dynasty, that's a little bit more difficult to say what the central government got from it. There is evidence, textual evidence, that discusses the central government sending eunuchs, officials to places like Guangzhou, Canton, to oversee trade. And it was very lucrative. I'm sure the government did get some wealth from it, but not nearly to the extent of the Song Dynasty. Before that, though, I think an important thing to keep in mind is that before the Anlushan Rebellion in the 750s, most of the trade that was happening between China and outlying states was through diplomatic embassies, and that did continue for centuries after that. Right, the tributary system. Exactly, and and you know the Ming Dynasty. Much later on, it went back. It kind of reverted to that system. But what was happening, the de facto means of trade was that governments would come with embassies via land, via sea, and a lot of trade would happen in this context. After the Anlushan Rebellion, at least. In Japan, but it seems also in Korea and maybe even Parhe, which was to the northeast of the Korean Peninsula, it seems that there was more private sea trade. For Japan, that was definitely the case. The embassy in the 830s that was essentially the last sea embassy for centuries afterwards. Another one was planned towards the end of the ninth century that the Japanese court was planning to send one to China. But there was a lot of a lot of reasons not to go. There was rebellion in China. There was a lot of strife going on. So the embassy ultimately was not sent. What we see is that after the Anlushan Rebellion, at least in East Asia, there's a very big transition from trade that goes on through official diplomacy. And trade that goes on between private intermediaries. So it's it's an interesting adjustment, and it wasn't a sharp adjustment either, because in this period of transition, you start to see embassies that aren't even hiding the fact that the reason they're arriving in one country is just purely for the sake of trade. They're not even trying to hide it. And then also you see these these private merchants showing up. And they're acting like they're state representatives. They're they're giving tribute in ancient ways. You know, they're coming with lambs and peacocks and and offering them as tribute. That goes back hundreds of years before then. You know, they're they're giving poetry. They're representing themselves like very, very cultured people. 
So it, it's kind of like at this time, pretty much in the ninth century, you're seeing diplomacy becoming more like private trade and private trade taking on the characteristics of diplomacy. But then after that, it just becomes more and more private trade for the sake of private trade. And it's interesting too, because if you fast forward a couple of centuries, the exact same things are happening. You have these fake envoys and fake embassies that go to China solely for the purpose of trade. I mean, Japan sends them, all these Southeast Asian states send them, but you also have these Chinese merchants who present themselves as fake envoys from China when they go out to these other states. So I guess all of this has already started to happen in the ninth century. Yeah. Yeah, it goes back to the ninth century. And I suspect, I can't prove this at all, but if we were, if we somehow had way more primary sources from the Han Dynasty, I suspect we would see it even further back. You know, it's, it's a question of primary sources and what they're able to reveal. But essentially, people will do all kinds of crazy things to get rich. That, that hasn't changed. Right. And I was going to say that there's probably a lot more that we don't know about these earlier periods because we just don't have the sources. Yes. The Song Dynasty, that's when the printing press comes into full play. It wasn't invented. It wasn't even, I think, I, I suppose you could say it was popularized during the Song Dynasty, but it existed before that. However, during the Song Dynasty, there was a lot of printing going on. Uh, a lot of documents were created. And as a result, there's just so much more textual evidence that exists about that period that allows us to understand what was going on. So because, the, because we have all this textual evidence, we are able to understand how the economy was, what types of people were doing business, how they were doing business. Whereas during the Tang Dynasty, the, the previous empire, you only really have hints of what's going on. You, sometimes you, you only have, you see something extraordinary, but there's only one example of it. You don't see it repeated in other sources. So I think really what makes the Song Dynasty extraordinary would be just that we just have the ability to know so much more. So since we're on the subject of sources, what are some of the sources that you use in your research on East Asian merchants? Yeah, well, definitely the best place to look for maritime trade is Japanese sources because the Chinese sources from the Tang Dynasty onward, so until about... Until about the early 10th century, most of what you have regarding commerce was all recorded in the dynastic records. And those were very much restricted towards what you could write about, how you could write about something. And talking about merchants, it was, it was at times derogatory to, to call someone a merchant. It wasn't something somebody wanted to be called because there were implications that it was morally inappropriate, that you were amassing wealth, you were greedy. So if you're only looking at legal codes or dynastic chronicles, what you're going to see about merchants, most of it's not going to look very good. So it's going to be limited in, in what they're talking about. A, a lot of the times they talk about people amassing too much wealth or the sons of merchants kind of sneaking into the exams one, some way, finding how, out how to take the civil service exams so they can enter the government. There's a lot of disdain in, in these types of records. But after that, once the Tang Dynasty collapses and there's decentralization, 
some of these states, especially in, in the south of China, they're they're taking on mercantilist policies and commerce becomes very important to the survival of, of these states. So you, you see in these official histories, commerce becoming more important. There's more discussion of maritime trade. And then by the Song Dynasty, of course, like I said, this is when there's a lot more written materials available, not just from the official government sources, but all kinds of gazetteers and records, private records from individuals. You start to learn a little bit more, but nothing compares to the Japanese sources because the Japanese sources were written by a different group of people and they were preserved for different reasons. It wasn't so much to do with the state to preserve these records in Japan. It had more to do with Buddhist institutions. So people familiar with Buddhist history know that Buddhist monks tend to travel with merchants. They go hand in hand. They work really well together since the early history of Buddhism. You see merchants and monks traveling together, helping each other. And the same holds true, just as it was on the Silk Road, the same holds true for Chinese and Japanese monks traveling to and from Japan. So in Japan, a lot of temples preserved records of their dealings with Chinese merchants. And you have diaries. The most famous one would be Enin's diary. Enin, for those who don't know, he was a Japanese monk who went to China in early part of about 837 is when he went to China. And he went with a Japanese embassy, but then quickly split off and he did his own thing. He went on pilgrimage throughout China. He went, passed through the capital of Chang'an. He went through all these like really interesting Korean diaspora communities in, in China. He went to some famous temples and he recorded so much of what was going on in China that it was kind of like the best comparison you could make is would be towards Marco Polo's book. It's very similar, but it would be for Japan. It would be like Japan's Marco Polo. So we learned so much about China from this one diary that Enning produced. And I believe in the 1950s, Reischauer, Edwin Reischauer at Harvard, he translated this book and he also wrote another book to accompany his translation that discussed a lot of the topics that were found in this book. And that was really influential. A lot of people are familiar with Enning's diary. However, there are other sources that were produced in Japan that scholars are not so familiar with. One example would be the monk Enchin, and I'm, I'm looking at a lot of his written works. He's talking about merchants giving firsthand examples of working with them. It's the kind of information that you absolutely do not see in Chinese sources. It's firsthand accounts, extremely valuable. And then there's just mundane records that were kept by Japanese temples dealing with Chinese merchants, asking them to acquire Buddhist goods while they're traveling in China. So it's an interesting comparison to make because in China, what you have is, is kind of determined by the state. All this information comes from the state, preserved by the state, whereas in Japan, it all comes from Buddhist temples. And I, I think they work well together if you can look at both sets of sources. Right. And I just want to say that the reason why these Chinese sources are so biased towards merchants is because of the Confucian notion that agriculture really is the root of everything. And that if you're not engaging in agriculture, 
you're not contributing to society, you're not producing. And so, especially from the Eastern Han onwards, there is this real bias, this real hostility on the part of the Confucian officials towards commerce. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's totally true. So, going back to the subject of sources, what do these sources tell us about these merchants? Who were they? Where did they come from? What were some of the items that they traded and why did they engage in commerce? Where they came from is pretty easy. Every time their origin, their place of origin is revealed, it turns out that they're from the Southeast. So from the 9th century until about just the end of the 10th century, they're almost all from Zhejiang province, the modern day Zhejiang province. After that, it kind of changes and you see a lot more Fujian merchants coming into the picture and they dominate sea trade from that point on until about a hundred years ago. They just kept that domination through and through. You see them in later, later centuries all over Southeast Asia, all over the Indian Ocean, in Japan, in Korea. They go all over the place. But you also do see some merchants from places like Suzhou and, and areas a little further north. As for who they were, that's an interesting question as well. Typically, people look at them from the point of view of the official sources, the Chinese sources, where they're just simply recorded as merchants. That's it. They're just plain old merchants. That's their occupational status. That's it. But if you really look at the Japanese sources, you get a different perspective. You see that these people are literate. A lot of them are literate. They can read, they can write, they can compose really well in terms of written works and poetry. They're, some of them are, I wouldn't say excellent poets, but they're decent poets. You know, they wouldn't hold up toward the most famous Chinese poets, but a lot of them are literate. And that begs the question of why they were literate. Because it, it takes a lot of resources, right? You, you have to educate a child from early on. You have to buy and collect all these books. You need to have a teacher. If someone in your family can't do it, you have to hire tutors. It's a big commitment to make. You need wealth to do that. And ultimately, the goal usually is to serve in government. So I'm writing an article now where I'm arguing that they were essentially, most of them belonged to the gentry class. And some of them, I would think that their families were tied either to local government or even state government. By the Song Dynasty, it becomes more clear that they had connections with the state government. So that's a very interesting point because we've just gone over how Confucianism has this bias and hostility towards commerce. Yet here you have members of the gentry who, as you said, they study, they take the exams, they become government officials. So why would members of the gentry be engaged in commerce? Yeah, my take at the moment is that you would have a family in the gentry. This is more clear in the Song Dynasty, but I, I think you could probably make this argument or at least put forward the theory that even during the 9th century, gentry families, they had their foot in many doors. It wasn't just serving in government. You know, if you have four or five sons in a large well-to-do family, maybe one of them will have the talent to pass the civil service exams. But what about the other few, right? Some scholars have wondered about that, but I think the question is still out there, what would happen with those who weren't written about? And that becomes a little bit more challenging to find out about them in the primary sources. But 
it does seem that some of them would go, would manage estates, land ownership, and others would go into trade. And some of them would make a lot of money and that could support their families if their hopes for civil service examinations didn't pan out. It's good to have that wealth. Doesn't matter what country, what civilization you're looking at, wealth generally can be transferred into power. So it seems then that one of the possible reasons was that this was a family diversification strategy. And I think you see the same thing happening in Europe at the time as well, where you might have a son who succeeds to the estate, another son who goes into the clergy, and then a third son who might become a merchant. So I guess it's really to help the family better survive. So the next question that I have then is that these Japanese sources tell us a lot more about these merchants, that they were quite literate, that they could compose poetry. Why do you think that's significant? Why do the Japanese sources specifically point that out when the Chinese sources don't? I think the reasons they note the literary abilities of these merchants, it's not for the sake of the merchants or their literary ability. Usually it's recorded for other reasons. It, it more having to do with the interests of the Buddhist religious establishments. So there's, there's one text that just has a wealth of information about these literate poets in the middle of the ninth century. And it's just a collection of, I think about 18 poems and seven letters. And almost all of it is, is written by merchants. But the reason they were preserved was because they were letters to the monk Enchin. And the temple where Enchin, where he operated, Onjoji, they kept that information, I think, because it was relative to the patriarch of their, their sect. So it made Enchin look good, really. You have all these poems written on his behalf, giving respect to him, discussing Buddhism. It painted Enchin in a very good light. It's hard to really speculate what the motivations are, but it made Enchin look good. And I would assume that that might have been the reason why it was preserved. And do you think then that their literary abilities would have helped them in their trading ventures? That's a good question. And I absolutely do think so, because there's a lot of power in writing, especially in the old days. You know, a thousand years ago, there weren't many people who were literate. If you were literate, you were essentially belonging to an elite culture. And in East Asia, the dominant form of writing was, of course, Sinitic Chinese writing. So these merchants, by virtue of being able to compose poems, to write these very nice letters, to comment on the classical Chinese texts, they were participating in this elite form of culture that you could see not only in the Chinese capital, in the Chinese courts, but you could also see it in the Korean courts and in the Japanese courts and among Japanese aristocracy. So that kind of allowed them to associate with these types of people. And these people were their customers. In Japan, it was the aristocracy, it was the court that was buying Chinese goods. They were spending a lot of wealth to get these goods. It was a very lucrative business. So to be able to associate with these people, to make them look good, to write poems, compose poems with them, that was good for business. So it was definitely advantageous. I'm not sure if it was 
required or if it was necessary, but it certainly did help. So up to this point, we've covered the sources, we've covered who these merchants were, why they're going out to sea, where they're coming from. And as a final closing question, I was just wondering, in your research, in your opinion, do these merchants have a bigger role to play? Earlier, you had said that during the Tang Dynasty, trade was more tied to diplomacy, whereas after the Tang Dynasty, private trade becomes more for the sake of private trade. So did these merchants have a bigger contribution aside from simply trading goods? In, in terms of their role in society and between societies and across regions, they were doing a lot of, a lot of different things. So first of all, they were trading prestige goods, very, very expensive items. It seems that early on, that was mainly what they were trading. Do you have some examples of what these prestige goods were? Yeah. So from Japan, Japan would just be giving gold, straight up gold, gold dust, some other products as well, even some manufactured products from fairly early, early on. But gold, that's what the Chinese and Korean merchants wanted from Japan the most. And in return, they would get ceramics. That was a very big item. Silks, they would be getting medicines, foodstuffs. It was mainly prestige goods, probably from the 9th century on. But afterwards, in around the 11th century and afterwards, you see more commodities. Japan starts trading sulfur. Sulfur becomes a very big export. China starts shipping out lots and lots, tens of millions of copper coins to Japan. And what they're trading what's important begins to change. So in terms of trade goods, those were the hot items, but it was not only that, there was also an exchange of religion. So Chinese and Korean merchants were shipping monks back and forth between the Korean peninsula and China, between Japan and China. And along with those monks were texts, sculptures, Buddhist images. That was also important. There were ideas, so books, probably about one or two centuries before private trade began. The embassies were bringing back books about Confucianism and Chinese philosophy. So ideas were going back and forth as well. And one final thing that hasn't gotten a lot of attention is that immigration was a big thing too. We know that Chinese were going to the Korean Peninsula since the fall of the Han Dynasty and earlier. And Chinese were also setting up communities in Japan as well. At first, there was one main community in Hakata, which is present-day Fukuoka. But then you see indications of Chinese setting up communities on that same island and later in other areas as well. And then, of course, in later centuries, there's Chinese communities in Osaka and Ryukyu and Tokyo and, and whatnot. So the flow of people was also important. And a lot of these people moved on merchant ships. Yeah. I mean, they were not just going to Japan, right? But also to Southeast Asia, where you see all these Chinese merchant colonies popping up, especially when we get to the early modern period in the 16th and 17th century. And even the initial arrival of the Europeans didn't disrupt this dynamic and this trade. In fact, the Europeans got very much involved and they helped push it along. And I think these practices that you've mentioned Really, you see them throughout East Asia and Southeast Asia well into, I'd say, the 19th century. 
And the fact that these practices are already starting in the 10th and 11th century really goes to show you how important this Tang Song period is as a transitional period, as a transformative period in Chinese history. Yeah, yeah. And I think the real change, the important thing to emphasize here is that the changes occur because of technology. As soon as people had the ability to build their own boats, to travel relatively safely across the ocean and trade with faraway states, they just did that. And they made a lot of money. They probably became powerful either on a local level, maybe even on the state level, but it was lucrative to do so. And as soon as they could do that, they did do that. So what really facilitated that was the technology. Yeah, I agree. And we can talk a lot more about technology because there's just such a big change in the Tang Song period with regards to technology. But I think we best leave that for a future episode. All right, so that concludes this episode. Thank you for listening to the Chinese History Podcast. Thanks for having me.